What we know now about toxic PFAS chemicals, also known as forever chemicals, is in large part due to the work of Cincinnati-based attorney Robert Billot. It started with a case Billot took on of a farmer in his hometown of Parkersburg, West Virginia, who claimed his cows were dying because of chemicals that his neighbor, the DuPont Company, was dumping into a landfill. That case would lead to Billot and others discovering a situation of global contamination. Welcome to The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll talk to Billot about his legal battle with companies using PFAS, the billions of dollars being paid out by 3M and DuPont, how prevalent these forever chemicals are in our public drinking water, and what's being done. We'll also hear from the head of Ohio EPA and Vogel about what the agency is doing when it comes to PFAS forever chemicals and efforts to keep Ohio's water clean. The conversation coming up. It's the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Good morning, and thanks for joining us today. Last month, Ideastream launched a new series focusing on the health effects of PFAS chemicals, commonly called forever chemicals. PFAS stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. The very first form of these synthetic chemicals was discovered during the early 1930s by a pair of German chemists, A few years later, Roy Plunkett created another version many are familiar with, Teflon. PFAS are a class of chemicals that number in the thousands. They've been used across the board in nonstick cookware, waterproof makeup, semiconductors, electronic components, and even medical devices like implants. They also have been used in a lot of firefighting foam. They're highly effective in repelling water and oil, but these chemicals are toxic and at certain levels are linked to major health problems, including cancer. Now that the series has concluded, we're going to spend some time looking at the legal effort by Cincinnati lawyer Robert Billot. He spent the last two decades in a legal battle with companies who have manufactured PFAS. His efforts has also been adapted into a very good movie called Dark Waters, starring Mark Ruffalo and Anne Hathaway. We're going to focus on regulation, testing, and how PFAS have affected Ohio's waterways by talking to Ohio EPA Director Ann Vogel. Did you listen to the series yet? And if so, what'd you think? Do you have questions for our guests? Tell us at 866-578-0903 or 216-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org or you can tweet us. We are at Sound of Ideas. Now, joining us in studio is Ideastream Midday host and reporter Jeff St. Clair, who produced this series. Welcome back, Jeff. It's great to be back. Also joining us by phone, we have Robert Billot, who we mentioned earlier. He is the Cincinnati lawyer who first led a series of lawsuits against DuPont, one of the chemical companies responsible for manufacturing PFAS. Thanks for calling. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Now, Jeff, your reporting on the series talked about how every person likely has some level of PFAS in their blood. So what does that mean, and what did you find out about how PFAS infects, affects environmental and public health? Well, uh, that uh, fact that we all have it comes from years of studies by the CDC as part of a, a monitoring system that looks at um, all sorts of contaminants in the environment, like pesticides and heavy metals and things like that. And uh, going back 20 years, uh, it, these, the, it's called the NHANES study from the CDC, uh, show certain levels of PFAS chemicals in people's blood. And, and the statistical way that they do this, they extrapolate 
of course they can't test every person in the country. Sure. But based on the the statistics, almost everyone they had tested of, of the thousands of people part of this NHANES study, they all have a group, not just one, but several uh, types of PFAS chemicals in the blood. So likely, you, I, everyone listening here has some of these chemicals circulating in their blood. And that's because they are bioaccumulative. They're in many, many consumer products. We're exposed to them in many different ways. And they stay in your blood for many years. They have a very long half-life is how they describe it. Many, you know, Once you're exposed, like say you eat a contaminated walleye, it's going to be in your blood for three to five years. Wow. So uh, it... I just became aware of these chemicals, you know, about a year ago when our, our editor, Stephanie Chekolinsky, said, let's do something on these chemicals. And so gradually learning more and more and then, of course, interviewing some of the experts in the field, including Robert Billot, uh, learning more and more about uh, this risk class. All right. So so that's kind of the present day and your approach to uh, why you wanted to do this series. Robert, we mentioned the movie Dark Waters earlier. You also wrote a book chronicling your legal journey. So for those not familiar with the story or haven't seen the movie, um, it started with a farmer in your hometown of Parkersburg, West Virginia, who reached out to your grandma. Can you kind of tell us that origin story of how you first connected with uh, this farmer in your hometown? Sure. Um, you know, I was a, a lawyer in, at the law firm of Taft, Statinius and Hollister in Cincinnati, or actually, I'm still practicing now, 33 years. But uh, I'd been practicing there about eight years, and most of what I was doing at that point was really working for a lot of um, big uh, corporate clients, chemical companies, helping them get permits and comply with different environmental laws and rules and regulations. And one day, I get a call on my uh, office phone, and this gentleman on the other end of the line started telling me about cows dying on his property. And that wasn't the kind of thing I was doing at the time. I was working with big companies, helping them uh, comply with the different environmental rules and laws. And I was, so I was about to hang up the phone <laughs> when he uh, blurted out that my grandmother had given him my name and told uh -oh. him I could help him. So I paid a little closer attention at that point. And uh, what he explained was he was raising cows on property that he and his family had owned for generations outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia. And that's when the connection, uh, I understood what was going on here, because that's where my mom and her entire family had grown up. Uh, my dad had been in the Air Force. We had traveled around a lot, but we always came back to Parkersburg. And that was the place we spent holidays, birthdays, etc. So I started to pay a little closer attention. And this farmer was explaining to me that um, over the last several years, his cows had started getting sick. And uh, he was convinced he knew what was happening. There was white foam coming out of a landfill right next to his property. Mm. And it flowed into a creek that his cows were drinking from. And as more foam flowed into that creek and more of it was being consumed by the cows, he saw them getting sicker and sicker with tumors. Their teeth were turning black. They were wasting away. No matter how much he would feed them, they were losing weight. And calves were being born stillborn. And eventually, by the time he called me, and this was October of 1998, he had lost over 100 cows, um, but he couldn't get anybody locally to help him because the, the folks that owned the landfill uh, were the DuPont company. Now, that was a company we, I was pretty familiar with. We represented a lot of big chemical companies, not DuPont, but we knew them well. Um, yeah, that was one of the world's largest chemical companies at the time. 
And they also happened to own a huge factory in Parkersburg. So everybody there locally either worked there, they knew somebody that worked there. A lot of the local lawyers didn't really want to get involved. So sure. he had been talking to his neighbor uh, who happened to have been on the phone that day with my grandmother who said, hey, my, son, my grandson's an environmental lawyer. So surely he could help you. <laughs> so that's how I got the call. And that led to what became uh, the next several decades of digging into this family of PFAS chemicals and discovering um, that these chemicals had been out there for decades. And there had been a lot known about how toxic and dangerous they were by the manufacturers. But it was covered up um, and withheld from the public, from scientists, from regulators. And you mentioned, for example, you know, the, that, I'm, I'm sorry, the, we, Scott mentioned example of these chemicals being found in, in human blood. You know, the NHANES studies that were started in the 90s. These companies making these chemicals had found out this stuff was in human blood in the 1970s, by as early as 1975, and had been covering that up. So we've, we've spent the last several decades trying to do what we can to get this story out to the rest of the world, that these chemicals are out there. They're incredibly toxic, persistent, bioaccumulative, carcinogenic. And what is bioaccumulative? I'm sorry to interrupt. What does bioaccumulative mean? I've heard you and Jeff refer to that. Yeah. It means these are chemicals that are pretty unique. Uh, They don't exist in the natural world. They were never on the planet prior to the 1940s. Mm. And these companies that invented this way of connecting carbons to fluorine atoms made this incredibly strong chemical backbone in these chemicals. And so what that, the, rea- the practical effect of that is when these chemicals get out into the world, they don't break down, they don't break apart. So if they get out into the, the water, the soil, they stay there virtually forever. They don't break down under natural conditions, which is why you hear them referred to as forever chemicals. But when they get into living things, um, particularly humans, our bodies don't know how to get rid of these man-made chemicals. So they stay there, they build up, Mm. they accumulate over time. So every little bit that we're exposed to, no matter how minute, not only stays in us and sticks in our blood and circulates throughout our body over time, but it builds up to higher and higher levels. And again, that's something the, the manufacturers of these chemicals were aware of by the 1970s, that it was getting in blood and it was staying there. They were monitoring their workers and seeing that these, the workers exposed to these chemicals not only would, would retain them in their blood, but they would build up to higher and higher levels. So let me ask you this, Rob. I know the movie's a dramatization, but how much pushback from DuPont did you get? And how exhaustive was your effort to discover, hey, there are a group of chemicals out there that these companies are using that the government doesn't even know about. It doesn't know to regulate. And my hunch is, and ultimately was proven by that scientific panel, which we'll talk about, um, that these are incredibly toxic and at certain levels are causing cancer in people's bodies. I mean, that must have been a, 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 a bit of a tenuous situation to go against a company company like DuPont? Well, absolutely. You know, at, at first, uh, it, I, I had a really hard time believing what I was reading and what I was seeing. 
um, you know, the fact that there could be chemicals like this that were so toxic and, mm. and persistent and carcinogenic that, that weren't regulated. That was the thing that really struck me when I first found out, you know, that these chemicals were out there. They were in the water that these cows were drinking, that they were getting into the local communities drinking water. Um, you know, at first I thought, well, that, you know, this stuff can't be bad. It's not even regulated. And then what I be slowly began to discover was they were not regulated because the information about them had been simply covered up and withheld from the folks that needed the information in order to regulate. So as I dug in more and became more and more concerned with what I was seeing in these documents about how much had been known about the risks of these chemicals and how aggressively that had been covered up, you know, I did uh, make attempts to then start getting that information out. And one of the first things I did was back in 2001, put together a big letter, and you, you see this in the film, Dark Waters, and I talk about it more in the book, Exposure. But I put together this letter to go to the federal EPA, the Department of Justice, different regulators at the time, to try to alert them that, hey, you know, this stuff's out there, and it seems to have gone un unregulated. It was, this has been covered up. At the time, DuPont actually went into federal court to try to get a gag order wow. to stop me from disclosing that to the EPA and from making that information public. Luckily, the court rejected that effort, and I was allowed to then start sending this information to the EPA. And that's, frankly, what prompted them to, to start digging into this in late 2001 and early 2002 which led to them beginning the regulatory effort, which has continued to this day. Now, we're going to take a break, but I want to ask you first, tell me about the lawsuit that led to the creation of a scientific panel and what that panel proved. Sure. Um, after we finally got this information out to the local community there along the Ohio River where Mr. Tennant, the farmer whose cows were dying, uh, lived and we realized this stuff had gotten into the local drinking water, we ended up bringing a lawsuit on behalf of that community. And it ended up being different communities all around the Parkersburg area on the Ohio and the West Virginia side of the Ohio River who had this chemical in their drinking water, about 70,000 people. And as we finally were able to resolve that case in 2004, um, one of the things that we discovered was there was all of this information about how toxic these chemicals were that had been covered up, uh, but a lot of that hadn't been <laughs> made available to scientists or to the regulators, and so there wasn't uh, information out there that we could provide to the community about exactly what these chemicals would do to them. So we set up um, an independent panel of scientists, what we called the C8 Science Panel. Mm -hmm. We sat down with DuPont and we picked independent scientists that both sides agreed were completely independent. And their job was to look at all of the data, not just what had been published and peer-reviewed, which at that point was only what the companies were choosing right. to release to the public, but also all of the internal data that had been covered up and to do new studies of the impacted community. And their job was to look at all of that data, including the new data they were gonna generate, and determine whether or not drinking this chemical in the water could actually be linked with human disease. Uh, because what we were seeing in the documents surely indicated it was, right. but DuPont was disputing it. 
So we set up that panel in 2004, uh, actually 2005, and that panel ended up doing some of the biggest human epidemiology health studies ever done on any chemical. Uh, about 12 different massive new studies. They spent seven years doing those studies. We got 69,000 people in that community to come forward and provide blood data, health information, turned it all over to this panel. And so having all this data, that panel was finally able to independently confirm what we'd been seeing in those internal documents from decades ago, that the chemical was in fact linked with human disease. Six diseases in particular, testicular cancer, kidney cancer, ulcerative colitis, thyroid disease, preeclampsia, and high cholesterol. So they finished that work in 2012. And in the decades since, additional health impacts have been found as well, such as impacts to the immune system, which have really resulted in regulatory agencies being incredibly concerned about these chemicals and why we're seeing such low acceptable levels for these chemicals now in the water, almost down to zero. And we will get to that. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side of it, we'll return uh, with our conversation about PFAS chemicals with reporter and host Jeff St. Clair and Cincinnati attorney Robert Billot and the head of the Ohio EPA. I'm Jenny Hamill. This is The Sound of Ideas. We'll be right back. You're with the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks for staying with us this hour. We are talking about PFAS, or forever chemicals, today. And despite their decades-long existence, widespread awareness has been recent. We'll continue this hour with Ideastream's midday host and reporter, Jeff St. Clair, who created this Ideastream series focusing on PFAS, who is in studio with us. We're also joined by phone, Robert Billot, who stays with us to tell us more about his experience as one of the leading litigators against DuPont, one of the largest chemical companies in the U.S. that manufactured PFAS, and his current fight today. Thanks for staying on the line. New research from the U.S. Geological Survey found PFAS has contaminated nearly half of all drinking water sources in the country. In Ohio, specifically, a recent study by the Environmental Working Group found high PFAS levels in Lake Erie fish. The state also tested all water systems across Ohio from 2020 to 2022 and found PFAS contamination in dozens of public and private water systems. Even though 15 states as of 2023 have passed laws restricting the manufacturing of PFAS, Ohio is not one of them. We will now turn to talking about regulation, testing, the role of public agencies, and the impact in Ohio, specifically our waterways. Calling in to give us more insight on where Ohio stands is Ann Vogel, director of the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency. Director Vogel, thanks so much for giving us some of your time. Good morning, Jenny. Thanks for having me. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you live in an area where your water was tested for PFAS? Maybe you do eat Lake Erie fish and want to know more about its effects on you or have a question for one of our guests. Call 866-578-0903 or 216-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. 
Robert, you first contacted the U.S. EPA decades ago with concerns about PFAS. What steps has the federal agency taken to regulate these chemicals? Uh, it's it's taken a long time. Um, you know, as I as I mentioned, we first reached out in 2001. Um, and unfortunately, there was a lot of continuing misinformation and attempts to mislead not only the federal EPA, but state agencies um, for many years, telling them there's no information that's harmful, there's no data out there. So it took a long time to get that information out to the agencies. And uh, particularly after the science panel linked uh, PFOA, one of these PFOS chemicals, with these human diseases we mentioned, that really sort of jump-started the agency's efforts to try to really address these chemicals. And it was after um, these chemicals were linked with disease in 2012 that the EPA, the US EPA, uh, first started looking at, well, you know, does this stuff exist all over the country or is it just there along the Ohio River? Uh, so they started requiring drinking water supplies to sample um, in t um, for th these chemicals as unregulated chemicals back in 2013 and 14. And um, as that sampling started to occur for the first time, we started seeing that these chemicals were in fact being found in drinking water supplies. And again, as the science continued to evolve as well and showed this potential impact on immune systems or even vaccine response during COVID, well, that was raging. Um, the, the agency started digging in and, and in fact, in 2016, the US EPA came out with its very first drinking water guidelines for PFOA and related chemical, PFOS, thing used in Scotchgard and firefighting foam. Um, of no more than 70 parts per trillion combined, which is about less than one drop of water in an Olympic-sized swimming pool, gives an idea of the toxicity of this stuff. But just even over the last several years, as this additional science has come in and showing additional potential human health impacts at even lower and lower exposure, exposure levels, US EPA just a year or so ago came out and revised those guidelines and said they were dropping the, those guidelines from 70 parts per trillion down to about four parts per trillion and recommending that the maximum contaminant level goal, because these two PFOS, PFOA and PFOS, could be seen as carcinogens, down to essentially zero. And then they've, they've proposed for the first time that they were going to adopt national drinking water standards for two of these chemicals, PFOA and PFOS. So that process is underway right now to, uh, to adopt these uh, national drinking water standards. Hasn't happened yet, but we're almost there. And the US EPA has also announced that it intends to try to regulate these chemicals now under the Superfund law as hazardous substances. And possibly just a couple days ago, announced that they may also regulate them as hazardous waste under different federal laws. So we're really seeing a, um, a uh, increasing activity now at the federal level based on the, the um, increasing concerns shown by the science. Now, and I'd love for you to explain to us the responsibilities of the Ohio EPA when it comes to PFAS chemicals um, together. Sure. So, under Governor DeWine's leadership, Ohio has done a lot in the last three years in terms of testing the public water systems to understand where we may have PFAS contamination. 
the good news is of the 1,500 public water systems that were sampled in starting in 2019, 95% of them did not have detections. So the goal of that effort really was to figure out where we do have problems and to work with those public water systems to make sure that we're able to treat or find uncontaminated sources of water. So that effort is underway. Uh, we have announced several other initiatives. Uh, Governor DeWine asked us to expand this effort to rivers, to testing our rivers, testing the fish in our large rivers to see if there's PFAS contamination present uh, across the state of Ohio. So we definitely are still in an investigative role in you know, trying to figure out where we have problems. But as we find them, we work very closely with the communities to make sure that we're able to uh, provide safe, clean drinking water. Now, Jeff, I know that your reporting included studies showing PFAS in fish in some waterways. Tell us more about that. Well, that was from uh, EPA data dating back the past decade, uh, looking at fish all over the country that had been sampled and tested for PFAS. And we focused on Lake Erie because it's basically a $2 billion sports fishing industry. And uh, the EPA data showed uh, large amounts of PFAS in perch and walleye, which are, you know, <laughs> delicious fish that people uh, really uh, enjoy. But uh, Ohio, unlike our neighboring states, does not have any uh, recommendations on what are safe amounts uh, to eat of these fish. And when we contacted uh, the Ohio Department of Health, they essentially said that um, we're already warning people about mercury and PCBs that are in the fish. So it's the, the PFAS really wouldn't provide much more information. Uh, we're assuming that they are still considering whether to add warnings or recommendations about um, PFAS in the fish, uh, but that has not happened yet in Ohio. So, uh, and whose purview is that under? And I'm curious why we wouldn't have advisories considering the high levels of PFAS found according to EPA data in Lake Erie's fish um, and in the blood of people who consumed large amounts of this fish. So we work very closely with the Ohio Department of Health. They are the ones responsible for doing any sort of human consumption advisories. But um, it, it is fair to say we continue to evaluate the science, uh, as Jeff said. And, it, you know, it's important to know that US EPA has not set standards yet for uh, surface water uh, for PFAS contamination. So as we continue to track that, um, and as I said, we test fish in large rivers in Ohio in this coming uh, field season, we will provide all that information to the Ohio EPA and as we work together on the next phase of the Ohio PFAS Action Plan, um, that will certainly be considered. Now, I'm curious, Anne, from your vantage point, I mean, you know, we're talking about specific sciences uh, about PFAS and, and, and different kind of numeric values, and it can sound very confusing to the layperson. So do you think the public should be concerned about contamination levels we're seeing in Ohio waterways and in human blood? Uh, how concerned should the public be? And do we know the impact on, on, on health um, here in Ohio when it comes to PFAS? So, as I said, I think we're still very much in an investigatory phase. I think, um, obviously, Robert did a really nice job explaining what has been found through the, the experts, what they have found. Um, what we know, though, is that our public water systems are safe. 
Our public water systems do not have high levels of contamination. Uh, we are able to treat for PFAS where we have found it. And so they sh- Ohioans should feel confident about uh, the safety of their drinking water. Again, if you'd like to participate in our conversation or ask a question, 866-578-0903 or 216-578-0903, or you can email us at soi at idstream.org. Rob, I I would turn the same question to you. I mean, you live and breathe um, PFAS chemicals and understanding, you know, the trajectory of our understanding of, of these chemicals and impact on health. Do you think that um, Ohioans can 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 feel um, safe with our drinking water? Um, how much of a threat are these chemicals to uh, general health? Yeah, I think one of the things we've seen here is, as as uh, the director pointed out, we have uh, only recently really started to collect the data about where are these chemicals being found, and unfortunately, you know, as the testing continues. These chemicals are being found not just in Ohio, but now, frankly, all over the world, in Europe, in Japan, in Australia, and in particularly places where firefighting foams were used to, be, to combat petroleum fires. So these are widespread um, chemicals that are impacting drinking water all over the world. And in the United States in particular, uh, since testing really began here first for these chemicals, you've got a lot of water supplies um, that have found these chemicals including some in Ohio. And luckily, um, there have been some recent attempts to try to get funding uh, to get this out of the water supplies. And in fact, um, over the last several years, actually dating back uh, many years now, we have been representing um, different folks that are trying to, to pursue claims against the makers of these chemicals to make sure that the costs of getting this stuff out of the water isn't borne by the taxpayers, by the states, by the cities, by the water providers, that the companies who created this stuff should be the ones paying for that. And um, over the last several years, we've been pursuing litigation against some of the, the main manufacturers, folks like 3M, the 3M company in Minnesota, and DuPont. And uh, you know, recently, there have been some rather large settlements achieved, actually some of the largest settlements um, in U.S. history. We were able to obtain with 3M and DuPont to provide a a little over $13 billion uh, in funding for folks to be able to to get this out of public drinking water supplies. And litigation continues to try to get funding for things like wastewater impacts or property damage or airports and things of that nature. So, um, you know, efforts are certainly underway to try to make sure that the tools are available, the funding is available to get this out of the water. Um, because again, as the scientific consensus really kind of um, is, is, is definitely growing, that these chemicals are, are a concern and shouldn't be in public water. We wanna make sure that the funding is there to get it out. And, and fortunately, we've been able to, to try to, uh, to get that funding done. Um, and there are technologies that are available. As, as you heard the director indicated, there are technologies like granular activated carbon systems, reverse osmosis and ion exchange, different types of systems that are available now to remove these chemicals from drinking water. But they can be incredibly expensive. Uh, so we want to make sure that those costs 
aren't pushed on to essentially the victims of the contamination and that the people who actually created the problem are the ones paying for it. So I think we're, we're, we're making some good progress in that regard. Rob, you mentioned that $13.5 billion settlement with DuPont and 3M. And as Jeff um, so aptly put the last time he was on, that's, uh, that's on the same level as what the Sackler family paid out for essentially their responsibility in the entire opioid crisis. It is a huge sum. But it's covering 50 states, and it's not clear how much Ohio will get uh, of that settlement and how that money will be distributed. Is it enough? It's still a major question, and it might be a good question, actually, for Director Vogel. Uh, if you know how, how much will Ohio get, and how will it be spent? Anne, we'll turn that question to you. Uh, Jeff's exactly right. We don't know how it will be allocated or how much Ohio will get. I can guarantee that it won't be enough. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, this is this is a long-term problem. And as we talk about US EPA lowering the standard for drinking water, it's going to be very expensive for public water systems to treat uh, to a non-detect level of PFAS. We're going to help them with it. Um, you know, we've been. Uh, H2Ohio, the Governor's Water Quality Initiative, has been funding some of these projects to date. But, but of course, the need is great. Um, we do have our own DuPont settlement that the Governor and the Attorney General announced about a month ago. That's $100 million that will go to Southeast Ohio. Uh, so there, there are a lot of funding sources available, um, but the need is also great, no question. And Rob, if you could put this into context as far as what Ohio's government needs are um, and, and water system needs are to make sure that the public um, is not being contaminated with PFAS as compared to the monies that are being doled out. I know that you've said previously that, you know, it's kind of a dynamic number and there could be more money coming, um, you know, the way of different municipalities. But um, that's not for certain. Right. I mean, keep in mind, the settlements we've been talking about, the, the $13 billion from 3M and DuPont, that is, those are settling only public drinking water system claims. All right? It's not addressing wastewater systems or claims by states. You know, for example, you know, we were honored to be part of the team representing the state of Ohio in their separate lawsuit against DuPont and the recent settlement there for over $100 million. So there are still claims by other states um, against these same companies. There are claims by airports and others with property damage. So there is a, additional uh, amounts, obviously, that will be coming. Um, but again, this is a huge problem, and it's a global problem. And you're dealing with a fairly small group of companies, unfortunately that uh, created this stuff and manufactured it. So there's also a concern, you know, about uh, we don't want to necessarily be pushing folks into bankruptcy also, where nobody gets paid for, for a long time, if ever. So, you know, these are incredibly difficult issues um, and incredibly expensive issues um, that impact huge sectors of the economy. So it, it's going to be something that um, requires a lot of continuing effort um, you know, over, a, over some time to come. I want to 
read a couple emails from listeners who are tuned into this conversation. Bob says, I don't want to be concerned. I want to be proactive. What steps should I or can I take to reduce PFAS ingestion? Well, that is the best question, actually, because the best uh, way of, of dealing with this concern is reducing your exposure to PFAS. And that means uh, don't use um, uh, stain-resistant fabrics and carpets and things like that. Try to avoid those sort of um, brands that would advertise that they've used chemicals to, to use stain resistance. Um, Watch your use of waterproofing sprays. Uh, almost all the waterproofing sprays that are available have some uh, amount of PFAS in them. Even certain clothing brands and waterproof fabrics uh, or, you know, coats and things like that. Um, be careful with your exposure to those sort of products. Uh, long-lasting and waterproof makeup almost always contains PFAS. Those are not good for you. Uh, watch your intake of potentially contaminated fish. That's, that's one thing. Um, there, uh, so information is really your best um, weapon in uh, reducing your exposure to these. So there are websites that, that list consumer products that have them. And, uh, you know, you just, it, it, at this point, it's really up to consumers to arm themselves with information. This is going to jump in to say that, you know, it's the, the problem is even today, it's still very difficult to find out which products have these things. You can look for buzzwords like waterproof, stain resistance, grease proof, that kind of thing. But again, it, it gets back to this whole problem with information being covered up and withheld for, for many, many decades. A lot of these companies that have been making products using these materials didn't even know these, these chemicals were in there because a lot of this wasn't passed on in ingredient lists or in material safety data sheets or other information. So um, it's, it's difficult to find out which products. And, and as, as Jeff mentioned, there are great websites out there where different groups are trying to, to collect what data does exist, like the Environmental Working Group or Green Science Policy Institute or folks like that that are trying to make that information available because when consumers are informed, you know, it is making a difference. People that are reaching out to a lot of the, for example, the fast food retailers or clothing manufacturers, cosmetic makers, and saying, hey, we don't want these chemicals in these products anymore. We are seeing major, you know, multinational, main, big name brands stepping forward and voluntarily committing to stop using these chemicals. Even 3M, the original manufacturer of most of these chemicals, recently announced they would stop making all of them by the end of 2025. So informing and having information available to consumers is critically important and it makes a huge difference. Uh, we also got a uh, email from listener Laura. I'm trying to get to it right now. And uh, she wrote, thanks for this investigative report. I live in a rural area and I have a well. How would I find out if I have PFAS chemicals in my drinking water? And uh, might you ha have an answer for that question? Sure. So uh, the Ohio EPA and the Ohio Department of Health have a lot of information on our website about exactly this, how you would go about finding. There are um, very specific protocols involved with testing for PFAS. So you want to 
contract with a lab that knows how to do the work accurately. Uh, but there are tests that you can do on your private well uh, that will measure for exact levels of PFAS and, and other things. Um, but again, there's a lot of information uh, into the last point. There's a lot of information as in fact sheets on how to limit your exposure to PFAS as well on our website. Can I jump in there? There, There is a local lab called Summit Environmental Technologies. It's the lab that we used for our testing there in Cuyahoga Falls, North Akron area, and they do water testing. Uh, so um, that is one. I think, as far as I know, there are only really two labs in Ohio uh, that will do PFAS testing. It's a very difficult analysis, uh, but that is, that's the place to look at, Summit Environmental Technologies. Let's take uh, one last break, and when we return, we'll continue this conversation about PFAS chemicals and finding out more about what Ohio is doing to keep the public safe when it comes to drinking water and exposure to PFAS. This is The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll be right back. I'm Jenny Hamill. This is The Sound of Ideas. Thanks for staying with us this hour as we talk about PFAS chemicals with attorney Robert Billot, who's a partner at Taft Law Firm in Cincinnati, director Ann Vogel of the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency, and our own midday host and reporter, Ideastream Public Media's Jeff St. Clair. Now, Ann, I would like to give you an opportunity to kind of tell us more about the governor's initiative to keep the waterways clean with the H2 Ohio. I hope I'm saying that correctly. You are. Thank you for that. So we've I, again, going back to 2019, uh, the governor asked us to do a PFAS action plan. That really was the result of the first significant detection uh, in Allwood, Ohio, over in uh, the Dayton area. And so since then, we've really focused on uh, how to help our public water systems deal with this emerging contaminant. Uh, one of the most recent things that the governor announced was an AFFF uh, take-back program statewide, so this is the firefighting foam that has been referenced several times. Uh, there's still a, plenty of this material that contains PFAS compounds on shelves in uh, around Ohio on, um, on the shelves of fire stations. So we're going to take that back. We have a partnership with Battelle to destroy that AFFF firefighting foam. So that's one of the exciting recent developments uh, in terms of Ohio's efforts to combat PFAS. Interesting. You know, and and my understanding from kind of having done research and listening to previous interviews with Rob is that this firefighting foam is pervasive and, and has been used since the 60s um, from firefighters all around the world. Is that right, Rob? Yes. You know, unfortunately, this stuff came out into the world in the late 1960s during the Vietnam War era and has been used pretty much all over the place outside of um you know, uh, from military bases to to regular airports, pr- uh, local fire stations. Really, it's in the type has been in the type of foam called aqueous film forming foam, or this A triple F, uh, used to combat petroleum fires. And it's only been in the recent last couple of years when information's finally come out about the fact that this stuff was loaded with these PFAS chemicals that we've seen attempts to try to come up with different formulations and to move away from these foams. And, and again, unfortunately, information that, that these foams had PFAS in them 
was, was withheld from the folks using them, from those buying them, from the military, from the firefighters, from the, the, the service personnel um, who are only just now realizing that this stuff had the PFAS in it. Um, you know, because you think about how how are you told to use this, you know, to spray it out all over the ground. Right. And unfortunately, that's why we're finding so much contamination all over the world now. This stuff has been used not just here in the U.S., but internationally as well. We got an email from Tom who writes, companies should not be allowed to take chemicals to market until they can prove non-harm. Overall, we need scientific, governmental, and corporate transparency and due diligence when it concerns public health. Now, that's the goal, right, Rob? But uh, I don't know. What's your understanding of the reality of use of chemicals and, 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 and how well the public is protected? Well, you know, the reality is that we did have a federal law on the books called the Toxic Substances Control Act that dated back to 1976 that did require um, companies making or using these toxic chemicals to report information about risk to human health or the environment, substantial risk. Um, And, you know, what you see in this story of PFAS is unfortunately, you know, it was really kind of left up to the, the manufacturers and the users of these chemicals to voluntarily disclose that to the agency. Um, and in this case, they, they chose not to. They covered it up. And it wasn't until our litigation with the farmer in West Virginia that we were able to start uncovering that information, providing it to the agencies. And in fact, that's EPA came, ended up suing DuPont for having withheld this information under the federal law. So it, you know, the laws are there. The problem is, how do, you, how do you enforce it when somebody purposely doesn't turn the information over? And that's, that's a much bigger problem. An email from Linda who says, we've been just as slow to hold the plastics industry accountable for the immense damage they continue to cause to our health and our environment as we have been for the oil industry. Why can't we learn from past mistakes and in action? Now, Jeff, I, I, I'm curious, you know, you've mentioned before the fact that although this seems to be such a enormous issue, it really didn't garner national attention for years and decades. What to you was kind of the spark that really got people's attention focused on PFAS, that it's not just a West Virginia and Southern Ohio problem? Oh, I think a lot of ways it's uh, Robert Billot's work, uh, the film that came out a few years back starring Mark Ruffalo and Anne Hathaway, you know, telling his story, uh, brought it out. Um, but there is still something a little, you know, nonstick about these chemicals in the public uh, awareness. There, it, There's a lot of chemistry in it and, and a lot of science that, that kind of, you know, people kind of glaze over after a while. Uh, and there are, we, we are inundated with so many other concerns too. It's just it's just one more thing. And it's not clear, the science is not clear really about at what point we will start seeing health effects. That still is being determined of actually how, what happens when these chemicals are in your body. There's still studies going on trying to figure out exactly the, the, that. Um, and uh, the medical industry or, or you know medical providers still don't have any guidance 
specifically about how to um, advise people about these. Uh, the CDC is still working on those guidelines through their, their agency. It's called the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. The National Academy of Sciences sent recommendations to them a couple of years ago. But uh, still, that hasn't been put in place. So if you go to the doctor and you say, I'm worried about my PFAS, the doctors generally don't really know what to do anyway. So there's just so many questions. Again, the public has to inform themselves and, and ascertain their, their own level of, of you know, risk and, and what to do about it. Well, Rob, we are running out of time, but I've got to say, I watched the movie and uh, turned to my spouse and said, this guy's an American hero. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but, uh, you know, I, I'm curious, what are your feelings about working in this space for the last 20 plus years? You were a corporate defense company um, and you've been fighting this vice, fighting this fight for decades. So how has it impacted you? Well, you know, it's uh, it continues on, and I'll tell you, I, I really think you know we have to thank folks like Wilbur Tennant, and his wife, and his family, and Joe Kiger, the folks in those communities who stood up and and said, "Look, you know, this this is not the way this should work," and you know, we're, we're willing to take on huge chemical company, we're willing to take on, you know, the the whole legal process, the scientific process, the regulatory process. And, you know, to say this needs to change. And we're seeing the results of their courageous work, I think. And I think um, uh, we all owe them a debt of gratitude, you know, for be willing to, being willing to do that. You know, and it's remarkable to think it's been almost 25 years since that process started. Uh, and so it takes a long time sometimes, but it's worth it. You know, we're seeing the laws change. We're seeing steps being taken now to protect people all over the world from these chemicals. These chemicals are now being taken out finally of these products. Again, as I mentioned before, the biggest manufacturer of them, 3M, agreeing to stop making all of them. So it, 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 it again, sometimes it takes a while to get there, but it's worth it. And uh, it results in I think, a, a better world for all of us. Robert Billot, partner at Taft Law Firm in Cincinnati, Ann Vogel, director of the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency, and our own Jeff St. Clair, midday host and reporter here at Idea Stream Public Media. It was a very interesting conversation. I appreciate all of your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jenny. To get the last word on today's topic, send an email to soi at ideastream.org. We are on Twitter, now X at Sound of Ideas. And you can follow me at Jenny Hamill underscore. Yesterday, a listen email, listener emailed in on our segment featuring two poets connecting over a shared cover photo for their new books. Dave sent us this quote from Leonardo da Vinci, which reads, Poetry is painting that is felt rather than seen. Painting is poetry that is seen rather than felt. Thanks for sharing those words, Dave. And tomorrow on The Sound of Ideas, we're going to discuss the idea of land ethics and local conservation efforts inspired by Aldo Leopold. If you missed any portion of the program, find us online or listen to The Sound of Ideas podcast. You can hear the rebroadcast tonight at 9 on 89.7 WKSU. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks for listening. I'll speak with you again tomorrow.